Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Magic and the Other Guy. And Kevin and I are once again sitting outside my home in Charlotte, North Carolina, on the banks of Lake Wiley. And I have to say, Kevin, today the sky is an absolutely perfect Carolina blue sky. And when I first moved to Charlotte, lots of folks said, you will love the winter days in Charlotte in sharp contrast to winter days in England because in England everything is grey and damp and miserable in the winter typically and in Charlotte I mean the sky is absolutely beautifully beautifully blue. Well this is this is our payoff for those uh, humid, humid days of July and August that uh, we have to suffer yes. through to get to this point. Yes. But we're, we're wearing layers today and it's very crisp out on the porch. Yes, uh, yes. The, the thermometer tells me it's 72 degrees, but it Not on the porch. <laughs> doesn't feel like that, does no. it? It feels about like 62 degrees. But All right, well, uh, one thing we haven't decided yet, and I never know the answer to this until we start, is what what we're going to be talking about today. So Kevin, start us off. What is our topic of conversation for episode 10? Well, our topic today was kind of inspired by me watching an episode of uh, Antiques Roadshow recently, which made me think everybody's got great stories of great finds. Yeah. So what's some of your great finds, be it be it finding a, a stash of money, be it finding <laughs> something just odd at random as you're going through some somewhere or yeah. maybe a, a treasure you found in a thrift store or antique store so it's good multifaceted but yes uh, well i'll tell you one thing finds. one one thing i have never found not really uh is uh is money on the floor dropped money for whatever reason but there, really <laughs> i always think about that because i had a school friend when we were sort of eight nine ten eleven twelve that that sort of age and he was seemingly forever finding, you know, five pound or a pound note on the floor, five pound note in, uh, you know, on, on the park grounds or whatever, you know, sort of at least a couple of times a year. And <clears throat> I never found anything. The only exception to that, um, and again, I, I've never really found anything on the floor, was in the Paris metro system. When I lived in, in France for those 15 years, I would... Uh, take the train from Cognac, Bordeaux, up to Paris, uh, in the south of Paris, to Montparnasse Station, then cross Paris on the metro system to the Charles de Gaulle Airport, spend the night in Charles de Gaulle Airport or on the left bank in Paris, and then the next day fly over to New York for the race. I used to do that every race, so it was a, it was a journey I knew very well. But one particular day, I was going through the metro system and looked down on the floor, and lo and behold, there was a 50-euro note on the floor, right? I thought, wow, my look has changed. It's 50 euros. And as I went down to pick it up, a door opened, one of those sliding automatic doors that there is a lot on the Paris metro yeah, system. Between, I know exactly yeah, what you're talking about. The, the door opened and, and the gust of wind blew the, blew, the, blew the note the other side of the door and I couldn't get it. And I just saw this chap on the other side of the door. His, his face beamed with a big smile as he realized the note had blown towards him and away from me. Oh, gosh. And then the door shut and it was gone. <laughs> so I've never had any luck with money. How about you? Uh, well, as far as finding money, actually, the... I think the most I found at one time was $60. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, we were, it was in uh, Tennessee. We were going to university, the Tennessee football game, and we pulled into a parking spot, and I opened the door to get out and just looked down, and there was this little Velcro wallet. So I picked it up and uh, opened it up, and the only thing in it was three 20s, and a couple of, it had those little flaps for photos in it, and it had a, a couple of 
pictures of you know maybe third grade, fourth grade age okay, kids in their yeah, school their yeah. school pictures. So I was taking as probably belonged to somebody of their schoolmates. Yeah, but, but there's no address or anything. No, nothing else in it whatsoever. Yeah. So there's no way for me to return it, which I would have obviously, oh, but sure. there just wasn't any any way to do it. Yeah. So that's I think the most. I have found forty at one time as well. Whoa. I definitely found a twenty one time. What? Yeah, another twenty was just blowing by. <laughs> You're as lucky and, as my old school friend. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Maybe it's just me that's destined never to find out well, another and one, one of them early, this was probably back in junior high, we were a uh, friend, friend of ours. Uh, his mom was a realtor, and she was representing a commercial property. <clears throat> and so she hired us to go mow the property to make it you know, presentable and nice. So she was going to give us a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm mowing along, and lo and behold, I find this very old, faded, tattered $5 bill to go on it. So I got a bonus for the day. <laughs> So, Good on you. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. gotta gotta love it. You just never know. Well, you you're born lucky, as they said. Well, I hope so. I hope so. What did David Hobbs always used to say? One of David Hobbs' great line is, "Better to be born lucky than good." <laughs> it will it'll often right. often save you. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've never I've never been uh, lucky at finding money on the floor. Not really. But I, the one thing that sticks in my mind that I, I did discover, and I was absolutely thrilled to discover it was once again, this is, a, this is a France story, my life in France story. I was um, uh, restoring an old Citroen Traction Avant, which is an old 1937 car, of which there were an awful lot in, in France at one time. And uh, they're, they're, a, they're a terrific, fun car. Anybody that's interested in mechanical engineering will know the Traction Avant. Um, for several reasons. It had torsion bar suspension decades before Formula One ever thought this was the way forward. And it was front-wheel drive. Again, this is in the oh, 1930s. That is pretty progressive yeah, now. so um, there, was a lot, there was a lot going for it. And uh, they're very, very simple mechanical things, really. So, and, and relatively easy to restore if, and this is the big if, if you can find the parts. And a lot of parts are now being remanufactured, but some parts aren't. And... Um, on the front windscreen of a traction Avant, you can open and close the windows like a vent at the yep. front screen, mm -hmm. you yep. know, uh, as some folks would say, real fly in the face motoring. And uh, so you could open the vent and it would, you know, that would cool the car down. Um, and I, my traction that I had had a broken control knob, uh, it'd been broken over the years, and I couldn't find one for love nor money anyway, could not find this particular piece. And so my, my window on the, on the traction was always permanently closed. Well, one day, I'm strolling through uh, the woods and forests around Charente, around where I lived in France, looking for mushrooms. It was mushroom season. It was about this time of year, actually, sort of October, November time. Mm -hmm. And I discovered in the woods an old wrecked traction avant, a rusted-out shell still had the motor in it, still had a lot of the suspension component on it, and, well, you know where this story's going. Surprise, surprise, the window regulator knob was in the car. Oh, I love it. Uh, so there it was. Yes, it was Yes, absolutely lost in the forest, and uh, it helped me out that day, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, how about you? What's your greatest find? Well, I, as far as, like, just finding something, this one's just kind of rather odd. We, growing up, we lived on a dead-end street. So there was about, I think, maybe... 16 houses on okay. the whole street eight on each side and right. at the very end when you got to the end it just literally stopped and there was woods yes and 
So was, would you call these, forgive my interruption, would you call that a cul-de-sac? Is no, that, I always think a cul-de-sac has to have that kind of circular okay, end to okay. it, where this one didn't. It just it literally just the road ended. Right, right, but right. it's funny, they have built a cul-de-sac in there since. Yes. So now you go, they've added a cul-de-sac and probably put in maybe five more houses around that circle. Yes, okay. But at the time, it just literally ended at the end of the road. wasn't even a barrier or anything. It's just like... You go, you go five feet further, you're going to be in a tree. Yes. But now the re the reason I ask that is thinking about French cul-de-sac in in France means the bottom of the bag. Okay. So if you look at you know, the design of it, you now you can see yep. mm -hmm. you know, cul-de-sac. Well, oh yeah. Voila. I've learned heard it a thousand times, but never know the reason. <laughs> That's right. You learn something every day on this podcast, folks. <laughs> but for some reason, uh, a friend of I, mine and I, we were playing in the neighborhood, and about nine years old, I'm thinking, and we just decided to go trotting through the woods okay, and go back. Right. And there was a little creek that ran through there. So, you know, the bank, you know, it would be a little divot, you know, where the creek had made its way through. Yes. And I looked down, out in the middle of the woods, there's one of those big wheels that you ride. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, right. How it got there, who put it there, Yes. I have no earthly idea. But I'm like, well, this is great. So I drug it out. We walked, you know, drag it down to the, it was supposed to be in summertime because I remember it being fairly warm. Yeah. And... We just got the hose out, and they were kind of hollow on the inside. And I took the hose and one of the little holes there and blasted that thing, and mud just came out of it and everything. But that's how I got my big wheel. And my friend had a, a green machine at the time. I don't know if you remember that one. It was made by the same company. No. And no. he moved these levers in the back oh, okay. turn. Okay. So he had oh. that, and I, I now had the big wheel, so we were set. Yes. Yeah. So no, never, I never had, and I can't think of any of my friends that had the big wheel in England. But I've seen them, and... Um, yeah, I've seen Stewie uh, from Family Guy. He's a big fan of his big wheel. Yeah. I think. yeah. So it's that, that that front wheel we're talking about. It's like it was like two dish-shaped mild steel parts put together. Is when I you don't said think there was any steel on that wheel. I think it was all plastic. Oh, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And the, the right. pedals were attached to it at the axle. Yes. That was the pedal. So you just put yeah. your foot out and just crank. And if you crank too fast, and actually as they got older. <laughs> The tread would wear down and you would just spin. <laughs> yeah. I remember actually yeah, putting... Yeah, so you need a, the traction control system on it. Well, my traction control was wrapping it in duct tape because that at least gave me traction for a while until yeah. the duct tape ran through. Yeah. But uh, so we had a lot of fun with that little find. And I, who knows, I probably sold it at a garage sale when we moved or for something. Yeah. You know? So that's, that's my, I think, most interesting out of the blue, why is it here find. Yes. Well, you've, you've sparked my memory now. I love these conversations because... You always make me remember things I'd, I'd seemingly forgotten. I don't know how the human mind works, how these things are stored in the brain. But as a young kid now, one of my school friends, Joseph and I, we would catch uh, what was known as the Midland Red Double-Decker bus from our little village uh, into the town of Loughborough as kids. I mean, it would have been, yeah, like 12, I guess, something like that. Uh, and I know in a previous episode we've talked about fish and chips being a big English tradition. So on a Saturday afternoon, occasionally what jo Joseph and I would do would catch the bus into Loughborough, and we would have a bag of fish. A bag just we couldn't afford the fish; it was too expensive. But we would have a bag of chips, um, in, a, in one of the chip shops in Loughborough. And then something which you simply can't do any longer: we would go to. Uh, uh, the junkyard, the scrap dealer in, oh, yeah, yeah. in Loughborough, which was, uh, uh, you know, when when you're a kid, everything looks big and vast and enormous, right? And, but my memory of this scrap yard in Loughborough down by the train station, it was this huge, great collection of old scrap cars. 
and uh, we would knock on the door of the guy that owned it and he was he was great he would say yes you know just don't have an accident you go around and have a look see what you can find you know and so we we did spend all afternoon there in the summer holidays and the summer afternoons and we'd be pulling sort of you know the the glove box down and seeing what was in the glove box and looking at the engines just fascinated mm-hmm. by this collection of rusting automobile memorabilia things, that, things that now would be worth a fortune things that would be a fortune but now yeah, worth a fortune but of course now you'd never have you'd never be able to get permission from the owner to walk around for health and safety reasons you know but it was never an issue back then we'd be climbing on the hoods on the bonnet and on the roof and trying to wind the windows down uh-huh. and climb inside and all that sort of great adventure yeah were you able to do that in the states too no nah, i mean if you you might have done it back in my era but there just wasn't anything close by within walking that right. was, it just wasn't the option yeah um but uh, I do remember uh, my one cousin I would always stay with. My, my parents were going to a dinner or something like that. I stay with my cousin Henry, who was much, much, much older. He was pretty older, retired by that time. Um, but up the way from him, there was kind of an industrial area, and they had a lot of uh, the big pipes and such like that, the big concrete pipes oh, okay. and such like that. Yeah. So when his uh, daughter was back home, she would, she and I would go up there and and. Sometimes we'd find, uh, and it was, I guess, either discarded or they were going to use them or whatever. So we don't feel like we were getting ourselves in too much trouble. But inevitably, there'd be a spray paint can. So we would spray our names on the pipes or <laughs> something like that. I, I think it's a, hard, a far cry to call it graffiti, but uh, yes, we yeah, did that yeah. and kind of knocked around that industrial area. Because it was also right next to a train track. Oh, okay. um, I don't think there was a stop there or anything, but it's kind of industrial with a, a train right next to his house. Yeah. Yes. Well, you were a bit of a trendsetter there, then, weren't you? If you, were, I, th- I don't, don't the kids call it tagging? Something yes. Else? Yeah. I guess, <laughs> I guess we were, we were right. early tagging in the seventies, and, and don't, tagging, don't yeah. do this at home. But no, uh, and I wish the kids yeah. had never done it at all, really, personally. But that's, you know, that's just my take on it. Yeah, yeah. I think I don't know even know what those because there's a lot of uh, old, just old scrap metal seemed to be around it, you know, from from a job or something that was either yes. pulled out or what they had left over. You know, it was all going somewhere. You know, I don't think we're harming anything that was. <laughs> readily going to be seen or need to be at least we hope we didn't yes well i remember those scrap yards were there used to be a lot of scrap yards around in the 60s and 70s because a lot of folks they they relied on them to keep their cars going i mean not you know there wasn't an awful lot of money around in england in the you know after the after the second world war finished in 45 1945 it took a long while for England to get back on its feet financially. And, uh, you know, there wasn't an awful lot of money to keep cars running. And, we, we you know, most folks couldn't afford new parts, even if you yep. could get them. So you'd go to the scrapyard to find parts to keep your car going. Yeah, which is a great way of repurposing, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember I remember one of the, one of the first, I guess I, was, I can call it a hobby now. When I first started uh, in the automotive industry as an apprentice mechanic, I had um, a Mark III Cortina. And the reason I wanted a Mark III Cortina, Cortinas were very, very common. They're all over the place, Ford Cortinas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like and the Mark III Cortina looked a little bit like a Camaro, first-generation Camaro, and I, I really wanted a first-generation Camaro, but of course, they weren't on the other side of the Atlantic. And so it was the nearest shape I could find to that. And um, the, the, the garage I worked for at the time, little Mazda dealer, uh, the chap that owned it, Terry Howlett, was very keen to, to train his apprentices to get involved and have an interest in mechanical engineering. 
And so I said to my boss one day, I would like to get hold of a, because it had a straightforward Pinto engine, the two litre Pinto engine in the, it was very common in those Cortinas. Um, and I said to my boss, I would love to put a V6 Ford V6 engine in, like a three litre Ford V6, which is the nearest thing we could get to a V8 to make it even more like a Camaro, you know. So uh, I went down to the local scrapyard and found, I think out of a transit van, a big panel van, a three litre Ford engine, paid hardly anything for it for to the scrap guy brought it back to the garage and stripped it down and um, we even had in this little garage a rebore machine which not many garages had but we had one so i rebored the block and rehoned it uh, put new pistons in new bearings rebuilt the engine which taught me an awful lot and then one weekend i did an engine transplant on the Cortina and dropped three litre V6 down into the into the car. Now, the reason this always sticks in my mind is simply this: all the time I had that Cortina or any other Cortina I was looking at, the airbox had this cutout shape that I could never quite figure out what this cutout shape was for. It seemed to be have no purpose, and there was lots of engine. There was lots of room around the engine bay, and it, so I don't understand why Ford had molded the shape of the airbox. To, uh, for, the, for the heater to have this cutout. But when I pulled out the two litre engine and discarded it and then went to drop the V engine back in, and remember, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with mechanical engineering, a V engine looks like a V shape rather than a straight I, which would be a four cylinder straight four. And when I dropped the V6 engine down into the engine bay, one of the cam covers from the, the V engine fitted absolutely perfectly into this pre-molded cutout into the heater box and then it was now like you a, know. it was a libel went on like ding oh i see what ford were doing now they never put the three liter engine into that car but one of the designers at ford had obviously thought if ever there was a time when we're going to put a six liter a six cylinder engine into this car we need to make sure it can fit so wow, it's like it was a, one, one of those memories. It stuck with me from that day to today. Thinking that's the sort of things you only discover if you're prepared to mm -hmm. play. And we need more thoughtful engineering like that today. Yeah. Instead of a car that once something goes, it's now just you know we can't ever get get it going again. And yes. Just discard it. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, again, so I suppose that's another another great find. Um, in a sort of metaphysical way, I suppose. It wasn't a fine to get the engine because there was plenty of those, but the discovery, the discovery, yeah. the discovery of, you know, yes, the way that the shape of the uh, heater box was formed was terrific, yeah. Well, did you have any, like, uh, where you were maybe in a thrift store or, or an antique store or such like that, and you just found something that was just a quite a treasure or something like that that maybe, like, was really akin to what you were interested in or something yes, like that? Yes, um, this is another... Uh, French memory for me, France memory if you like. Um, I've always been interested in history, as you know, the Second World War and the First World War, particularly the First World War, um, because of a, uh, my friendship with a, a dear old Mr. Goodman, who was um, who was a former soldier from from who'd taken part in the First World War. So I've always, and, and you know, he told me his accounts of the First World War as a much younger kid, which I've written about, you know. And um, so I've always had a sort of fascination for the First World War. And in France, they have a lot of little flea markets crop up every week called brocantes. And it's, it's exactly, it's just a flea market. You know, it's just folks will gather and oh, yeah. sell their stuff. Yeah, I love a flea market. Yes, and uh, in, in one of these little brocantes, uh, uh, 
market, flea markets, I, I discovered some uh, medals from the First World War, from a combatant. Had, so some, some dear old family member probably never made it back from the war, I don't know, or most definitely since you know, died and moved on. Uh, but there was a frame and a photograph of the chap and two medals that had been presented. And I just remember looking at this, and it only cost a, a, a few francs to pick it up. But um, I just thought, wow, what a, what a, what a sort of wonderful memory of, of this terrible conflict. But, you know, and the photograph of the chap himself was there. You know? Oh, wow. Never oh, knew great. who he was and his addition. story, but it was just great to have it. So I had it in my house uh, in France on display for many years. And then when I eventually had to leave France because of work bringing over to the, to the States, uh, I left it with the, with the Fauconet family uh, so they could have it. Uh, but, it, yeah, it was just a wonderful little memento of how often do you come across medals from the First World War? Well, if you look for them, probably you can find them relatively easy. But just to stumble across them in this little brocon was Well, was yeah, anything pre-eBay and stuff like that, you're always on a hunt yes. or, or what you might find. Yeah. Now, it's, now it's a whole different hunt of a, yeah. or a ball game of trying to find something. Now, you you are a great collector. You're more of a, certainly more of a collector than I am. And as we've spoken about in other episodes... <laughs> yeah, my wife somewhere just went, ugh. <laughs> I keep trying to sort of wean myself off collecting. But you still enjoy collecting very much, I think. Oh, somewhat. Um, but actually, it's funny you mentioned uh, flea market. That's actually one of the, the memories I have. This was probably, I was, I think, maybe first year of high school or something like that. I, you know, we lived in for, had been living in Florida for a couple of years, and I got into surfing and such like that and that kind of culture. But it wasn't when I was down in Florida, but when I was back in Maryville, Tennessee, which, again, we've been to, and actually we drove by this. We drove by that big flea market yes. on the way. Yeah. And I said, that's where they hold the big flea market that I used to yes. always go to when I was a kid. And we're walking up and down the road. That's a big venue. If I oh, it's yes. huge. Yeah, it's right, huge. Yeah. Um, and I was walking up and down the roads with my brother-in-law and, and probably my nephew and, and such. And there was this skimboard there. Are you familiar with skimboards? Mm, uh, is it? Okay, so do you throw it on right at the edge of the beach? Exactly. Right, okay. Yeah, I it's, know it's exactly. A, yes, yeah. It's a, a board, kind of a, has a little bit of an arrow shape to it. Uh, yes. It's, it's, it's thin, and you throw it on the very thinnest yes. part of the, the water ebbing and flowing. And you just jump on it and slide. Yeah. Well, here was this Zap brand skimboard made of fiberglass, which is a nice one. Okay. In this flea market in Maryville, Tennessee, and I bought it for eight dollars, and I still have it to this day. I can <laughs> still great. use it to this day. <laughs> That's it great. is in my attic right now. Yes. So forgive my uh, my ignorance of, um, of, of skimboards called right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Zap is the brand to have, is it? No. Well, I mean, they are one of the bigger ones, and maybe so. Yeah. I'm, I'm not familiar with all their things, but they've been around for a good long time, and I know they still sell them or are very popular. They may be the 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 best ones out there i'm not sure yeah, yes now you say you could still use your skimboard but when was when was the last time you did use your skimboard it's been a few years but some, within the past 10 years yes i've had it out yeah well good for you yeah well you're very into water sports aren't you it's surfing and skimboards and that sort of stuff is it's, you know that's right up your alley as they say yeah i think so because i mean again we we've mentioned the lake house before and we we bought that when i was seven and yeah. i immediately started water skiing yeah, we already dad was already had been into boating before I even came along, and uh, it made made perfect sense as something to do. So I, I started skiing young, and uh, kind of just went on with that. And then I like doing anything water related. And once we got to Florida, we actually we funny we lived in Lake County, so there was a lot of skiing going on down there anyway. But then yes. again, you could always pop in the car, and you know once we could drive, we'd be over at the at, on on the on the sand in forty five minutes. 
So. And, and your move down to Florida for you, I mean, you've shown me the apartment block and where you used to live and the beautiful beach and then the sea beyond. I mean, you must have been absolutely in your element when you moved down to Florida. And yeah, that was the second time. This was, you know, this was after college and I'd been in my career a few years. Uh, this was about 20, what, three years ago when I moved to the building that you're talking about on Jacksonville Beach. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I was there. We moved in on a Sunday and... I went. I had my. I had. A, I had bought a new surfboard by Thursday, so I was surfing by the next weekend. Yeah. So yeah. 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 Funny thing, it was. It was. It, I still remember vividly. It was going into. We moved in mid October into that apartment, mm-hmm. and so it was starting to get chilly. Yeah. You know, and I didn't have a wetsuit yet. And I remember going out surfing because I, I had this new board. And I wanted. I hadn't been in a long time because I'd been living in Tennessee, so I would go out and freeze. But I was happier in the water because at least the water, the wind wasn't whipping at me. So I was happier being in the cold water yes. than being in the very cold air. But uh, it wasn't too long. Within about probably two, three weeks, I finally broke down and bought a wetsuit and continued yeah, on. I see what you mean. So when, it's, when it is cold, when it's windy, you're better off being submerged in the water oh, than yeah. keep getting back out of the water. Yeah, because then you're just wet with wind <laughs> whipping at you and it's even worse. Yeah, I never really thought Yeah, I wonder why that never occurred to me before. Yeah, yeah. And who taught you? the love of surfing i mean you know did you were you self-taught or um i just think it's kind of the the kids i was hanging around with yeah. the guys we just kind of evolved into that i mean you just all did it yeah yeah i think we were we kind of evolved from bmx bikes slowly into skateboards and then it wasn't too long before you know we were skateboarding a lot but it just you know oh, let's surf too you know kind of thing and uh we ended up getting into that and Skateboarded a lot more because we lived, to say, you know, in the central Florida, and we could yeah. always skate every day anywhere. But then uh, we'd make trips over to the beach and just do it. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating the things that you can find. You know, if you start to look for them in um, antique fairs or flea markets or wherever, if you, you know, wonderful things that are there. But, um, I mean, quite often I find if I, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of fairly big antique centers in Charlotte, and... Uh, of course, you never know. You never know what you're going to find until you go in and look around. And it's those, it's just memories that they, you know, the, the spark. You know, oh wow, yes, you know, old vinyl albums. We've talked about that before, you know. And the place down uh, Charlotte, I think it's called the Sleepy Poet. There is one. I've never been in it. But yeah, one they have. That. They have quite a big uh, vinyl department, but. Um, yeah, I like to see a lot of those things, you know, just, just spark memories. Even if you don't pick them up, you know, if you, well, I don't, look, I'm trying not to collect, so I'm not going to, please don't try and sell it to me. But I am interested in seeing it. Yeah, there's a lot of memories come back from that. Well, the other thing that was similar to that is I still have fond memories of, especially when I was in Tennessee, my brother-in-law just liked to do this kind of thing. We would wake up real early on Saturday when I was visiting and hit the garage sales. So yes. we'd go driving yeah. around and hit garage sales. And yeah. it was it's just always a lot of fun because you never, ever know what you're going to find. Yes. And those are, I think, more interesting because people are just putting out whatever. And yeah, So the, the, a, a garage sale, garage sale, however, you know, that's a yard sale. Is that the same? Is that there, the same? Is the same thing? Here it's pretty much a generic term. Yeah, yeah, it can, it can be in the okay. yard. It can be in the garage. It can be in the carport. Yes. Most people call them garage sales. Yeah. I guess it's, it's interchangeable. I ask because I don't think... We have them over in England, I don't think. I mean, maybe, you know, probably a little bit like Halloween, things have changed and maybe folks do have uh, garage sales, uh, yard sales. But, yeah, we didn't used to have that, but we did have, which was, I guess, the communal equivalent of that, would be what was known as a rummage sale. 
and so maybe each, through a church or yeah, exactly, or church something? hall. Yeah. yeah, exactly, the church or the school or um, the village hall, wherever it would be. You know, once or twice a year, there would be an announcement. An, you know, an official announcement put up on the message board in the village, you know, collect all your things together, the next rummage sale is the 1st of June or whatever it would be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, trestle tables would be set up in, in the village hall or in the, you know, in the vicarage or, as you say, in the church or the school or wherever. And uh, everyone would bring their, you know, stuff they did want. Most of it was broken. Otherwise, we would have still had it, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you used to get great fun out of that. It used to be something like a penny to go in. So there was like a door entry fee of a penny. And yeah, yeah and then you would walk around and sometimes you'd find a toy that you really liked. Or, you know, uh, for me, it would be things like a um, different uniform for an action man or yep. yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah well, I, that, that spurred uh, a memory of me going. But this, this is what I was at a garage sale, but it was in Tennessee when my brother-in-law were knocking around. This was in the 80s somewhere, and, and they had somebody had an original uh, James Bond Thunderball board game. Oh, wow. And the pieces okay. had never been punched out on it. I mean, it was just literally as, as it had just come off the shelf, and I bought it for a quarter. <laughs> and I had it up until two years ago, and I sold it, sold it to someone for, I think, $30. So that's not a bad uh, return on your money. That's a good return. Well, you, you, I mean, we've said it before you like collecting, but you, 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 Greg, Great pleasure from that sort of stuff, don't you? I mean, I think, uh, and I love, I love to hear your stories of things you've found, and you know, yeah. But I mean, to find an old board game that hasn't been punched out, there can't be many of those. It's like trying to find a, you know, we both got an interest in the whole world's got an interest in Star Wars, but to find one of the original Star Wars toys that's never been out of its exactly, box, yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because, you know, like say it was in the 80s or something like that, and I would zone. I'd, I know that I knew that stuff, but I could be at the same garage sale and zone in on, say, a Star Wars figure, and they may have had a Fabergé egg in the corner for a dollar that's worth $10 million. I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah, have a clue, yeah. Yeah, but well, yeah. I, I could zone in on the uh, R2-D2 figure and know what I'm looking at. So you wonder how many of those things that you did walk right by or, or didn't snag, but that's all Oh, they would have been there. For sure they would have been there, yeah. Old oil paintings and things that have been handed down from generation to generation. They've been in the garage and then, you know, some relative dies and you don't know what to do and the house is cleared out. And oh, yeah. I mean, there's tons and tons of those stories. And you just, you're like, you're looking at it like, I just have to hit one. <laughs> just one that's a huge one like that to make it make it all worthwhile. Yeah, but I'm, I'm very much like you. Like, you know, I wouldn't know a real Fabergé egg from a, a fake you know, if it bonked me on the nose. <laughs> but I, I must admit, and I don't know if this is a guy thing, I feel exactly the same about, you know, jewellery and diamonds. I mean, you know, I, I look at a diamond and I can't I can't tell if it's good or bad. Oh, I yeah. can't tell the difference between a $10,000 diamond and a $500 diamond. I mean... That beauty is lost on me. So I guess we, we, you know, we're all interested in different things, but I, I am lost on where jewelry gets its price mm-hmm. from, really. Well, that's why there's experts in every field, and they, <laughs> they know their stuff. And yeah, yeah. But I, I wish I had discovered a Fabergé egg. I must admit, be absolutely thrilled. Oh, but I, I tell you, I watch those like antiques roadshow shows and stuff like that, and you're just amazed at what you know people have discovered <laughs> I or I know. you're right was in there oh this was passed down from my yeah, uncle it's, is, it's is it worth that. anything and they're like well i would insure this for one million dollars and they about hit the floor 
Yes. Well, next time we go shopping somewhere, we, we, <laughs> we should go. If we go on one of our one of our uh, story reading dinner venues somewhere, we must look out and see if we can find. Uh, where the next sale is going to be and have a look around and see what we can see. Yeah, you might find something that, you know, is from, from merry old England that I don't have a clue what it is. And you go, oh, yeah, we had 10 of those when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many wonderful. I mean, I can see those, you know, England is such a, you know, in the grand scheme of things, certainly relative to the States, England is so tiny. Uh, that there's, I mean, there's so much. And then again, there's a lot of history in England, of course. So there is, There must be hundreds of thousands of wonderful antiques that are still around there waiting to be discovered. I mean, you could take England and turn it on its side and drop it into California to just disappear. And that's just you know, obviously one state, you know. But uh, yeah, there's a great concentration of antiques in England for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, the U.S. is so diverse and there's, you know, stuff up in the uh, New England countries that probably have antiques that were shipped over, you know, in the very earliest days of the country that yes. are still in that area. Yeah. But then you have a whole different set when the when the West was won and tamed and, and people going out West and, you know, there are cowboy related artifacts and such like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and yes, you're right. And as you start to move from the original 13 colonies and you start to move West, the, the, the what you would find, the treasure you would find would change, I, I guess. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah certain things are known for their region and, and where you're going to find them. But, it, like I say, it is very odd when you can find something, you know, like a skimboard in the middle of Tennessee. <laughs> but along those same lines, I mean, at the time I was working for a, a restaurant in, in uh, Knoxville, and my boss just kind of, you know, we got to talking about how you came from Florida and I surf and stuff. And I was like, he said, oh, there's an old surfboard under the, under the house I bought. You want it? And I said, yes, I want it. There you go. That's just what we're talking so about. So we drug it out, and it was some board from the 60s. And I had it weighed a ton. But, uh, yeah, I had it in, in, until I moved back to Florida, but it went with me. You know, and I took yeah. it down there and yeah. rode it a few times. But That's exactly what we're talking about. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. They, they're still there. I mean, we, you know, we both have a, a, a great appreciation for the automotive industry. And, those barn finds are still being found. I mean, you know, occasionally another one will yep. be discovered. Yep. Yeah. Well, well my, my uh, friend here in in town, Tom Cotter, he's he writes the uh, uh, the kind of the, he's known as the barn find hunter, and he's written many books. Uh, they're like the Cobra in the Barn and yeah. such like that. And uh, yeah, he's he's done quite well. Uh, he calls it automotive archaeology. So. Yeah, so it really is. I mean, I think fairly recently. I'll have to. I, I'm I'm very unclear on the details of this, but. Fairly recently, another old Ferrari was found in a barn in France, I think, from the 60s, from the, you know, whether it was a 275 or whatever it was, but something fairly recently has been discovered in France. I'm sure really? I read that online, yeah, not too long ago. So these things are still up but a bit like me never finding money on the floor, five pound note on the yeah. floor. The chance I, of finding a rare Italian uh, treasure is going to be... The yes, the chance of me finding a 275 V12 Ferrari, for me personally, I think are not going to happen. You've got a lot of looks, so you say you might find it. I would. I hope. I still have that hope. <laughs> well, we better begin to wrap this episode up, I think. Oh, I think so. I think we covered a good bit of interesting ground today. <laughs> yes. I'm not sure what we... What did we start the conversation? Oh, collectibles. Yeah, we're, 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 well, fine. Yeah, we so, went, we yeah. went full circle, didn't we? We've, we finished where we started, which is probably a good thing to do. Well, gentle listener, there we are. Another episode in the bag, as they say. And do please join Kevin and myself again 
when we record another episode of Imagine the Other Guy. Kevin, would you like to say goodbye? Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Bye.